We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on the lands which Deep Herd operates. Welcome back to the Grains Combo Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development in Western Australia. I'm Cindy Webster. And I'm Jeanette Pratt, and we are research scientists based in regional WA. These episodes shine a spotlight on the knowledge and tools developed by Deeper to grow the grains industry. If you sprayed them into dry soil and gave them a good incorporation and they're sitting there at depth, and then you have a very small rainfall event that just wets up the top couple of centimetres, then your weed seeds sitting on the surface will probably emerge and there won't be enough moisture to activate the herbicides at depth. So there's going to be a lot of variation in how well pre-emergent herbicides work in a season like this. In today's episode, I'm talking with Deep Head Research Scientist Dr Dusty Sievertson, Dr Catherine Borger and Jeff Thomas about the impact of a dry start on pests, weeds and diseases. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Hey, Cindy. Thanks, Cindy. Good to be here. Hey, Cindy. I don't think I'll be announcing anything groundbreaking when I say that there was very little summer rain experienced in the WA Grain Belt this year. And while rainfall since April has been better in some areas, mainly the central Grain Belt and southeast coastal areas, there are parts of the Great Southern and Central West which are still waiting for an autumn break. On top of that, current climate outlooks for the next few months are also predicting below average rainfall. With all that in mind... Catherine, as a weed research scientist, can you tell us how a dry start influences weed emergence? Well, Cindy, most weeds in the winter cropping system have a cold stratification requirement, which is a fancy weed ecology way of saying they need to get cold. And obviously they need moisture. So if they don't have those really cold nights and moisture, you will see really staggered emergence right throughout the season. Okay, so weed emergence will likely be delayed. What does that mean for our pre-emergent herbicides? Well, it depends on what conditions you sprayed them in. If they went down into dry topsoil, then they're fine. They're just going to sit there until it rains. And when it does rain, they'll start working, the weeds will come up, and you'll see very little reduction in their efficiency. If you sowed your crop really early and it was warm, and it was a bit damp, then your herbicides are going to degrade very, very quickly. And they could be a bit useless by May when your main weed cohorts are coming up. If it was wet and fairly cold, they'll degrade slightly more quickly and they'll stay in the soil a bit longer. Also, if you sprayed them into dry soil and gave them a good incorporation and they're sitting there at depth, and then you have a very small rainfall event that just wets up the top couple of centimetres, then your weed seeds sitting on the surface will probably emerge and there won't be enough moisture to activate the herbicides at depth. So there's going to be a lot of variation in how well pre-emergent herbicides work in a season like this. And now over to you, Jeff. With the summer being dry, there was a limited green bridge. From a plant pathologist's perspective, how might that have impacted disease inoculum carryover? Well, Cindy, I guess... I mean, diseases are carried over in a number of ways, as we know, and many of our diseases like the net blotches and yellow spots and canola blacklegs are carried over on stubble. But there are a number of diseases like the rusts, like wheat powdery mildew to a degree, 
and certainly even some of our virus diseases, which aren't probably mediated to a degree by having a green bridge. So some of those diseases, particularly things like rusts, we might expect to be reduced in incidence this year just because there has been a reduced carryover, reduced amount of green material for to carry over those diseases. So yeah, that those sort of classic, what we might call green bridge diseases, we might see less of in this year. And Dusty, I believe a lack of green bridge is also good at reducing some pests and preventing them from ramping up before crops are emerged in a way. What effect has that been having and what should we expect? Yeah, that's right, Cindy. I guess generally, you know, really low green bridge year, typically we're looking at that reduced sort of inoculum across the environment generally. The thing that comes to mind first, I suppose, in a, in, in a medium to high green bridge year would be aphids, particularly in southern areas where they can transmit viruses. So your green peach aphids and turnip yellows virus and your oat and corn aphids potentially transmitting barley yellow dwarf virus in your cereals. But generally when we did our March-April green bridge surveys, we found very little green bridge and it was kind of really patchy down in those southern areas. Um, I mean, the rains that did come, it was quite late, right? So, and then so from that, from those rains that did happen, you know, we're, we're calling that maybe a green bridge, but it wasn't really a green bridge because it's, we're finding it to be generally pretty clean of pests. So it hasn't really had a chance to, well, pests to colonize and, and ramp up in the lead up to, I guess, crop establishment and all that. So generally we're expecting it to be pretty low on the radar, I suppose. I guess the other thing that we tend to worry about, which is a little bit uh, more unpredictable actually, would be caterpillar activity. We haven't really been hearing much of that this year, but sometimes in the green bridge, especially pre-season where we can get some February, March green bridge cranking up, what we would have is pests such as cabbage center grub, weed web moth, and especially cutworm, which some years is worse than others. The problem with that is, you know, we're sowing our sowing our canola early, putting a post-sowing pre-emergent bare earth spray down, but the plants that are emerging from that, they are basically unprotected from flying pests like a moth coming and laying egg, laying eggs. So if there's no post-emergent spray after that, in some years we find that these sort of sporadic, unpredictable moths that are coming from the environment, especially like, you know, sometimes it is like cabbage center grub or weed web moth. So we're hoping that to be pretty low on the radar this year as well. But we're, we're kind of, you know, we want to stay vigilant about that, particularly in these sort of moisture stressed scenarios, because even the plants that are in the green bridge, if they become moisture stressed. That encourages pest buildup and actually migration of things like moths. So we're kind of, I guess, keeping that on the radar. But generally, early caterpillar activity that's sort of more widespread, we would expect that in a, a medium to high green bridge year, which um, we're not really experiencing at the moment. And these moths, you know, would generally migrate into crops uh, from the environment. So yeah, it's, it's good that we have generally a, a very low green bridge and we didn't get that February, March green bridge, which is usually the worst compared to the one we've got at the moment. Thanks, Dusty. Moving back to weeds, Catherine, what does a dry summer mean for herbicide residues? Well, Cindy, as Dusty was just saying, there wasn't a lot of green bridge and it can feel great if you don't have to spray your summer weeds every five weeks over Christmas. But it means that a lot of the herbicides that were applied last year wouldn't have had a good chance to degrade in the soil. Uh, I suppose coprolids always a common problem, lontral, if you're going into legumes. It's worth remembering with Lontrol that the residue is on the soil, but it's also on the crop residue. So you can reduce your herbicide residue by getting rid of some of your stubble. I'm reluctant to say go out there and burn it all, but you can bail it up. For mesofen, reflex is also a common problem for cereals. That's going to be a biggest issue in sand with low organic carbon 
or the non-wetting sand. I suppose the imi herbicides are always a common culprit that we worry about, particularly in the sandy acidic soils. I'm sounding like a bit of a chemical expert here, but I'm not really. I'm a weed biology expert. Our chemical expert is Hamahinda Damu. And as it happens, Hami has just updated a website on the DPIRD internet called Residual Herbicides, Carryover and Behaviour in Dry Conditions. So if you're worried about your herbicide residues from last year and what to do about them, that site has a really good summary for some of our most problematic products. So have a read. Jeff, in our pre-season PestFacts WA webinar, there were some diseases that you were worried about. What were they and has that changed given the lack of rain? Uh, thanks, Cindy. Look, yeah, obviously, I guess the, the things we were worried about were the things that were problematic last year and were more likely to be carried into this year. So things like net form, net blotch on the south coast, which was very difficult to manage, blackleg and canola because of just literally because of the amount of stubble that's out there and obviously wheat, powdery mildew. So how have they changed? Well, I guess, I mean, coming into this season, there's no no change in the amount of stubble that's out there. So the, the risk is still present in that stubble for things like blackleg and, and net blotches. Uh, the difference is obviously that without rainfall events, Rainfall drives both sporulation and infection events. And so a reduced number of rainfall events just means a reduced um, incidence of the likelihood of those diseases being problematic. Now, that's not going to be everywhere, obviously, because whilst we're saying it's a dry, a dry start, there are some areas that have received some rain. So there will be, there will be variability, but those, the likelihood is that as we continue to have a drier than normal, you know, seedling and tillering type stage, that the, the pressure from those uh, stubble-borne diseases, it will be diminished. Maybe one that, the other one that, as I mentioned, was wheat powdery mildew. And I've already said that there wasn't really a green bridge, but we do know that in, in many, well, in quite a few areas, there was quite an early break. And that meant that there has been some regrowth in some areas localised. And if we've got, uh, if we've got you know, um, regrowth of septa wheat now, you know, being present for two months, um, the, the chances are that that may be carrying over some uh, wheat powdery mildew inoculum. So there is there is potentially still localised risk of those diseases. But generally speaking, reduced rain days, reduced humidity means that the opportunities for disease infection is reduced. And what about root and crown diseases such as crown rot? Are they worse in a dry year, Jeff? Look, that's a, that's a really interesting one, Cindy, and it's a bit of a, I mean, I guess it's a bit hidden away. Sometimes we don't think about about uh, what impact there might be of this wet and dry season. So we know that we've had a couple of really cracking years the last couple of years and big crops, and we've seen it from above, but that also means that there's pretty big um, root systems and that there's also been opportunity for infection to occur during those seasons. So the likelihood is, and particularly for something like crown rot, that, that there actually there is a lot of infected material in paddocks Maybe we haven't had the expression because we haven't had that the, the moisture stress that, that brings on the expression of crown rot. This is a classic year where the likelihood is or the outlook is that we might have a, you know, a dry season and that, that certainly hastens the expression of something like crown rot. Not a lot we can do about it at this stage, although maybe managing nitrogen to ensure that we're not growing too big a, a crop in a dry season and not hastening that moisture stress is probably one weapon that we can utilise. But certainly there is a, a higher risk of those crown and, and root diseases this year and certainly something to bear in mind for coming seasons as well because some of that inoculum will persist. And moving on to back to insects, 
While it may have been dry recently, we have also been experiencing cooler daytime temperatures. Dusty, what does that mean for insect pest activity? Yeah, I guess it's not surprising that generally cooler daytime temperatures decrease insect pest activity. So kind of between 23 and 27 is the optimum temperature for insects to thrive, you know, and every year is different. So I guess at the start of the year, some years we have a warm start and, and that really actually encourages insect activity for things like aphids and even weevils and beetles. They're sort of more active uh, and that sort of thing. So we have been having some cooler, cooler temperatures. Having said that, things like red-legged earth might actually do like cool, cool temperatures and uh, that sort of thing. So that's something to look out for. But yeah, I guess the other thing that's important here is the cooler weather also delays seedlings from growing out of that risky period. So it's kind of a trade-off. With warmer starts, we can we can have seedlings push through out of that risk period. Uh, whereas if, if we have more of a window, sometimes what that means, you know, that crop damage is less likely to push through if there is crop damage. And we, there's potential to, you know, reduce plant densities as well in this sort of scenario. And Dusty, you did briefly mention red-legged earth mite. Can you tell us a bit more about that pest and why its emergence is different in the central and south areas of WA compared to the north? Yeah, so I mentioned it's it's a different scenario every year, which is why we try and get on top of it, I suppose, of, of what's going on in each region. But with red-legged earth mites, they have a temperature and a moisture requirement for eggs to hatch. So these eggs are these eggs were produced uh, the previous spring and they're oversummering diapause eggs. So when we get these lower temperatures, it's it's sort of uh, below 20 degrees for a certain period of time, uh, but also a moisture requirement. So, you know, we can have cool temperatures and that if that moisture requirement hasn't been met, those eggs won't hatch. So we're, we're seeing a, this sort of scenario here where southern areas, actually sort of south from, you know, northern, they seem to have hatched and we're getting reports of red-legged earth mites in those southern areas. But I think a lot of that moisture requirement hasn't been met in more northern areas. And so Caesar Australia have produced a red-legged earth mite egg hatch calculator, which we've been keeping our eye on. And that's certainly saying, sort of confirming that, that they have yet to hatch hatch in, in some of these more northern areas, either or well, either that or sometimes it can be sort of a staggered hatching. So this is important when we're looking at, you know, what sort of what sort of post-sowing pre-emergent insecticide was used and how long ago was that? So that, you know, many weeks ago, that, that spray is probably not going to be that effective on, on red legs hatching at the moment. We also have a scenario where lucerne flea don't have the same requirements to hatch. So they have more of a soaking rain requirement and less of a temperature requirement. And we were seeing them sort of in the northern egg region weeks ago as well, starting to hatch. So it's kind of um, a different scenario. And I guess it's important to just be vigilant for these crops that, you know, especially if they're they're emerging and haven't had a, a post-emergent spray. So there's that that sort of scenario going on, I guess. And we are seeing some some things like bryobia mites around the place, but they, again, they don't really have that that requirement. So it's a bit of a mix that we're keeping our eye on. And Catherine, there surely must be some positives for growers when it comes to a dry season and weed control. Can you give us some good news? Well, if you have delayed emergence of your weeds, you've got a really good chance to get your crop up first. And some of the best crops I've seen in the last 20 years are the crops where the crop was sown into moisture and the top five centimetres stayed dry and the crop came up three weeks earlier than the weeds. Crop competition is still one of our most effective and cheapest forms of weed control. So we might hopefully see some really competitive crops out there. And if weed emergence is delayed, I'm assuming that means staggered emergence of weeds is likely. What weed control tactics should growers use this season? Yes, 
staggered emergence is the bane of our existence. When you get phone calls in August saying, my crop's full of weeds, and we're going, well, it's August. There's a limit to what you can spray. So having a solid plan of what you're going to spray in crop, obviously herbicide-tolerant crops are a great option when you're expecting staggered emergence, or maybe harvest weed seed control. If the crop's up first and it's highly competitive, then the weeds, they can be hard to target. If you're getting delayed emergence, I mean, things like radish and brome, they can still be coming up in August and September. And obviously, you can't get every cohort in that situation. And if they're tiny little weeds under the crop, then it's tempting to think it's easier to let them go. And sometimes you have no choice. You have to let those weeds survive the season. But I was working on barley grass with a lot of really great grow groups in the last three years. And we had magnificent crops in 2021 with tiny little barley grass, maybe 15 centimetres high with two or three heads. The plants looked pathetic, but they were still dropping two to 300 seeds per metre squared. So whether you choose to leave some weeds because you've got that staggered emergence or you're forced to leave some weeds surviving because you've got that staggered emergence, just keep in mind that you're still setting up the weed seed bank for next year. And again, sometimes that's not a choice, but keep it in mind for next year's weed management plan. And Jeff, there's a real possibility that things are going to stay dry. What do you recommend growers do when it comes to managing diseases in their crops this season? Well, Cindy, I guess, yeah, look, I've been sounding like there's not a lot of risk for disease. And I guess that's just generally the uh, over overlying sort of outlook. But actually, we just we do need to remember that there is a lot of inoculum, a lot of stubble out there. So we do have the potential risk. But I guess I, my advice would be in, in all circumstances now is to be is to be monitoring crops, is to be knowing what's happening, monitoring your actual crops, keeping an eye on what's happening in PESFAX and things like that to know what the disease risks are out there. But maybe it'll be a year where some of those early prophylactic applications of fungicide into cereals might not be required for some of the stubble-borne diseases, uh, particularly if, if we're seeding some crops slightly later and they're slow to emerge, then some of those early disease risks may be diminished. So I think my advice is that we just need to be monitoring crops, but not just using the same approaches maybe that we've used in previous high rainfall, high disease risk years. Thanks for that advice, Jeff. And Dusty, moving forward through the season, if things stay dry, what pests will growers need to keep an eye out for? So I guess generally, as I mentioned with the, the low green bridge, we're hoping that, you know, works into, works to our favor in terms of the uh, general populations of pests like aphids and, and moths out there. But, you know, unfortunately, moisture stressed crops, they really encourage um, things like aphids to thrive. They're, you know, more nutritious to them and, and all that sort of thing. But also stunted moisture stressed crops are much less likely to take damage, you know, be, smaller they are the the, the worse it's going to be and less less able to repair from damage and and push push through that especially in sort of low temperatures i suppose another thing to look out for in you know moisture stressed conditions unfortunately is that it encourages dispersal generally of flying insects so things like aphids they're encouraged to produce winged forms and to to move around the environment more that's just generally what happens and also with moths you know to to abandon their moisture stressed areas that they're in and, and venture of more so there could be more dispersal i suppose of insects in general certainly cereals are more resilient generally than are susceptible crops like canola lupins and chickpeas uh, but I, one thing we're keeping our eye on is there has been forecasted 
sort of warmer than median temperatures for June to August. Now, warmer than median through winter, that might mean that it's actually still quite cool. And we might see pest activity generally sort of drop off as we would expect. But what that means, warmer than median, I'm not sure. So if it does, if we do have some of those warmer days through winter, we could see some increased insect activity. And again, I guess some more, you know, possibility of dispersal, I suppose, which could potentially lead us into a bigger problem through the spring, but we will see how that goes. Thanks, Dusty. So it sounds like really monitoring crops for pests, weeds and diseases as the seasons progress is a common theme there. And we are nearing the end of our podcast. Is there anything that any of you would like to add before we finish that we haven't covered already? Cindy, I think um, it would, would be good if you could let us know what's going on in your area. It, it really helps for us to, to put it out in pest facts and let everybody know what's going on, especially some of these unpredictable problems that, you know, kind of save people a lot of time in terms of being out in their paddocks all the time. So if we, if we get some strange caterpillar activity from, you know, coming through on weather patterns, it's good for everybody to know about that and, and uh, to get out and, and protect, protect the crops. Yes, so growers and consultants can download our free PestFacts WA Reporter app. And Catherine and Jeff, is there anything on the weeds and disease front that you'd like to finish with? Not really. I agree with Dusty that we like to hear about unusual things, but we also like to hear about the usual problems. It still lets us put a reminder out there that, you know, this is time for the next step. I was also just thinking that we should have gone into crop breeding. Then we wouldn't always be on these podcasts probably focusing on crop production's biggest problems. <laughs> Cindy, I, I just quickly would like to reiterate Dusty's point that you know, reporting of incidences of diseases is, is pretty important because it's not, it helps others know what risks are, are emerging. And also there are a number of decision support tools that are available like the Black Leg CM or the Sclerotinia CM or the Yellow Spot WM app which can help to help with decision-making about intervention for diseases in, in, in season. So just a reminder to everybody that, that those sort of apps are available. Thank you so much, Dusty, Catherine and Jeff, for coming on to the podcast and highlighting the impact of a dry start on pests, weeds and diseases. Thanks, Cindy. Thanks, Cindy. Thanks. More information on this topic can be found in the show notes. If you like this episode, you can download and subscribe to Grains Convo on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be back on the 1st and 15th of every month with a new episode. Thanks for listening. Listening.